Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses, just verses 18 and 19 this morning. I'm going to read uh, verse 17 for the sake of context. Um, And then next week we'll finish off this chapter and uh, we'll finish this letter um, probably at the end of the year. So, um, but we're looking at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3 this morning. Um, read from verse 17 with me. Brothers, join in following my example. And look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, And now tell you, even crying, as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these words and consider Paul's warning his admonition, his caution to the Philippians and by extension to all believers since, to us. Help us to receive these words, to understand them, the warning, the admonition, the caution, to examine our own lives. Help us to glean wisdom. Help us to think soberly. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words, that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a term which is used in the New Testament is both a character trait and an attitude or an outlook to adopt. We see this term used as a prerequisite for leaders in the church in 1 Timothy and in Titus, but we also see it used as an admonition by Peter and Paul concerning some serious issues in the Christian life. This term, uh, sober-minded, to be sober-minded. And there is a sense where that term is... um, in contrast to uh, drunkenness uh, in terms of sobriety, but um, more so in terms of thinking seriously about a certain issue. In 1 Peter, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter um, admonishes his readers to think soberly about their walk and about their lifestyle, to be holy. He also says in uh, chapter 4 and verse 7 of his, that same epistle. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. In light of the end, think soberly. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says this, Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, sinking someone to devour. Telling us to think soberly over the fact that we have an enemy who prowls about around, seeking someone to devour. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 um, something uh, similar. He says uh, this in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verses 3 to 9. He says, While they are saying peace and safety, 
Then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant, and they will never escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense where in that passage that Paul is contrasting uh, sobriety with drunkenness, but there's also a sense that he's using that term, that phrase, to think seriously concerning your salvation and concerning your hope and your walk. Paul uses this phrase again, this term again, as he gives uh, some of his lasting words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. In verse 2, he gives his, what is in a sense his final instructions to Timothy before he is executed. And he tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. As Paul gives those instructions, and he uses that phrase to be sober, or to think soberly, He's getting a little bit closer to what we will be looking at here in this passage this morning. That the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober. Think soberly about this. Think seriously. And though Paul does not use the term here in this passage in Philippians 3 and 18 and 19 to think soberly, I bring this term up because these are quite possibly the most sobering and serious verses of this whole letter. And primarily because I believe that this is one of the most sobering issues in the Christian life. That there are enemies of the cross of Christ. And those enemies are within the body of Christ. And yes, it's true that that, that Paul isn't necessarily or specifically uh, uh, pointing people out here in this passage. He's speaking to the wider church but warning the Philippians within their own local church that this will come and that there are enemies and they will even rise up from within and and, and people who were with you will depart from you because they are never really a part of you, as John says in 1 John. And so Paul gives this warning right after he calls the Philippians to join in following his example of pursuing Christ's likeness and seeking to model his whole life after Jesus Christ and living and striving and reaching forward to that goal of being Christ-like, which won't happen until he is in heaven, until he dies. And then he calls the Philippians to follow his example and then to look for those who walk according to the same pattern to the same example, to uh, follow those who are following after Christ. And then he contrasts that here in verse 18 and and goes to the other side of that, saying, For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even crying as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's speaking of uh, professing believers or false teachers. And in this warning of Paul's, he lists five characteristics 
of these enemies of the cross of Christ by which we can identify them, by which we can also not only identify them, but then in identifying them, warn them, and then for our own benefit to avoid them. The first characteristic he lists here is their degree. And we'll see these five characteristics in their degree, their doom, their devotion, their delight, and then their disposition. But first, their degree in verse 18. For many walk. Many. This is the extent or the degree to which the enemies of the cross number. There are many of them. There are many of them. And as we even read that, just that first phrase, for many walk, that there's many enemies of the cross of Christ, and they're, they're for the most part, professing believers. They're, they're within the, the Christian context, so to speak. Maybe not within the exact uh, local body of the Philippians, maybe on the, the, the outer perimeter or, or seeking to gain entrance into that local body. But nonetheless, there's enemies and there's many of them. And the fact that uh, there's many of them, there, there are two things that, that their degree or the extent to which they number requires. First, it requires several reminders. As Paul says, of whom I often told you. I often told you about this and warned you about this and maybe even named them as, as he even names Alexander the coppersmith. In another letter saying he, he did me much harm. And, and he, he named some others. Demas. Paul's not against naming them. But here he, he doesn't want to just list names. But he wants to give characteristics. And, and it's, it's one thing. Um, I think it's, it's right and good. And, and a good thing to name false teachers. And to call them out. But there's also a sense that there's so many of them, and especially in our day and age, you can't list them all. And the ones that are popular should be the most evident. The ones that are subtle, it takes a little bit more research to discern. But nonetheless, Paul says there's many of them, and then he lists characteristics so that the believers in Philippi could discern a little bit. And you can't really know for sure until they make themselves known and do something that's clearly against Scripture. But this fact that there's many of them requires several reminders. The reminder that not all who profess Christ possess Christ. And in our culture, and, and uh, you know, we, we've dealt with this over the probably the last couple generations. Just because of the fact that um, we've been prosperous and peaceful and it, it's, there hasn't been much, much persecution in the Western world and in America. And so it, it's, it's easy to just uh, come into a church or even grow up in a church and, you know, uh, raise your hand, uh, walk an aisle, uh, get your ticket punched um, and just be a nice person and somewhat seem like you're obedient, seem like you believe, and it's really hasn't, that truth really hasn't impacted your heart. You're, you're not really born again. You're not really striving after Christ. And so there's a sense that uh, this easy believism and also the, the, just the seeker-sensitive movement of, of these false teachers who, who want to build a crowd and, and, and create a movement and, and then use that to, you know, uh, to uh, fulfill all their fleshly desires of either riches or whatever, the, you know, the money, the notoriety, the influence that it comes with building a large, uh, quote-unquote, church that oftentimes isn't really a church. But this, the fact that there's many enemies, it requires several reminders that not all who profess Christ possess Christ. Also the reminder that there are tares among the wheat. 
As even Jesus would warn his disciples in Matthew 13, and here uh, in that chapter, and you can turn there, Matthew 13, Jesus teaches many parables concerning the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom and how you can understand what the kingdom is like and who is in the kingdom. And, and here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24, he gives this parable of the tares among the wheat. And he says to his disciples, he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn." Just as an aside, this is one of those passages uh, where we get the concept of the grim reaper. These are the angels that come at the end of the age and, in a sense, reap God's field, the world. And so you only have to be scared of the grim reaper if you're not a believer. (laughs) But uh, nonetheless, it will happen. And here we see that there are unbelievers... There are false believers that are within the church, within the church at large, within, I would even dare say, every local church. But there's also something that Jesus tells his disciples here, that we can't really go and try to divide them up. Because for the most part, you don't really know for sure. You don't know for sure until, in a sense, as even he says, it's ripe, until there's something that's explicit that shows their heart and their unbelief, or sometimes until they depart. And so you can't go around and try to divide them up because you don't really know. And then if you do that, you'll upset the, the true believers. So you just have to deal with it. Let them grow together. And at the end of the age, God will separate them. But the, the fact that there's many enemies, their degree, it, it, it requires the reminder that not all who profess Christ possess Christ, and, and not only the reminder that there are tares among the wheat, but also the reminder that there are wolves after the sheep. That there are wolves. Paul gives this the same, in a sense, the same uh, warning and admonition, but really elaborates more on it in Acts 20. As he, and you can turn there and read this in Acts 20, as he is, um, comes, he, he's sailing on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem, and, and he knows that, that something's going to happen there. And, and he, he stops off. He calls for the, the elders of the Ephesian church to come. So he has one last meeting with them. And um, he even, as he says here about crying over the fact that um, there's enemies of the cross, he, in a sense, does the same thing here. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 to 31, he tells the Ephesian elders, Uh, the leaders of that local church, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. It's a sobering warning concerning false teachers. And what's interesting, if you look at, I dare say, almost every one of the false teachers nowadays 
and you, you know, uh, read a little bit more about them, um, the famous ones, you, you know, Joel Steen, Andy Stanley, um, Stephen Furtick, uh, some other ones. There, there's many. Of, they have a religious background. Many of them grew up in church. They understand church. They understand church life. And they lead people astray. So the fact that there's many of them, their degree requires several reminders. But second, the degree to which the enemies of the cross number it requires sober reflection. Sober reflection on the fact that many people will oppose the faith. Many oppose Christ and sadly within the own church. And, and, and they might not see it that way. And usually because they're untaught, they, they don't understand the scriptures, they, they don't understand uh, who Christ is in his fullness, what he has done, they don't understand his commands, they don't understand um, his desires and his plans for his church. They, they are, in a sense, uh, unbelievers, and as unbelievers, they naturally oppose Christ. But this also requires sober reflection on the fact that many people will depart from the faith. As, as John uh, gives his warning in 1 John, that they went out from us because they were really not of us. And if you've been in a church long enough, you've been a believer long enough, you've seen those people. And, and sometimes they, it is true that we, we don't know the whole story and, and maybe... They, they did at some point uh, repent and find another church. Or, but nonetheless, you'll hear those stories and, and they might have been zealous. They might have served in great ways. And then they leave. We see this nowadays in, in the deconstruction, deconstructing your faith. And, and it's even most sobering and sad when you hear it from a, a famous pastor, someone that maybe, for the most part, was uh, biblical. And then all of a sudden, they just decide one day, I'm going to leave my wife and, and kids, and, and I'm just going to leave the church, and I'm no longer a Christian. And they run with the world. But we see this especially, and this is sad, um, especially if you're a parent. The kids grow up in church, and they go to Sunday school, and they learn things, and, and it seems like they're growing, and then all of a sudden they, they get to a certain age, whether it's the teenage years or the, their early 20s, where they have some freedom, and the heart manifests itself in what they truly believe and they follow after their own lusts and their own desires and they depart from the faith and, and some mature believers will see the pain in that and they'll see the reality of it and, and they will weep over that fact and they will continue to pray for them. But other people who aren't so mature or well-grounded in their faith will make those excuses. Well, I know, you know, little Billy or I know little Susie, you know, they, they raised their hand and they, they said they believe. And, and I asked them in Sunday school, does anybody want to go to heaven? They all raise their hand and then they get to the teenage years and they say, well, I don't know what happened. Fool. Like, read the Bible. The Bible tells you what happened. What was truly in their heart manifests itself in their life. And, and that, that doesn't uh, uh, take away from the fact that it is heartbreaking and it is sad and it may drive one to weeping and tears and we are to continue to pray for them and as long as they're on this earth, the, the story is not over. But nonetheless, their life exhibits exactly what the Bible says. That they went out from us because they are really not of us. Many people will depart from the faith. And sometimes what's hard is, is sometimes it, it, it's a, a person that was really committed and really zealous and, and 
You know, as many, many pastors, and especially youth pastors, have this testimony of uh, seeing the, the young, promising kid or the young man that they thought was going to go into ministry, and then he all of a sudden goes off, and then there's uh, the rascal <laughs> that, you know, you always have problems with, and that person turns out to be the true believer. And so even as, as Jesus tells his disciples, don't tear them up because you don't know. You just preach. There's also this sober reflection on the fact that most people are outside of the faith. Most people. Most people in the world are outside of the faith. And no one is born a Christian. You have to be born again. You're born a a, a son of the devil, as Jesus says. You're born in the kingdom of darkness. You're, You're born in sin. That's why Jesus says you must be born again to become a Christian. God must do a work in your heart and in your mind to take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There must, the Spirit must move within you and there must be regeneration. Most people are outside of the faith. And even as Paul gives this warning, he doesn't do it lightly because he weeps for them. He weeps for them. He weeps for them because of uh, their condition. Just as he even did for his own kinsmen in, in, uh, in uh, Romans 11, where he, he, in a sense, wishes he could trade places with them and wishes he could be a curse for his own kinsmen. This is the same thing Jesus did for his own people as he wept over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under his wing, her wing, but you would not have it. And Paul weeps for them just as Jesus weeped for them because of what will happen to them. That's why Jesus gives a stark warning in his uh, Sermon on the Mount as he gets towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and probably you know, some of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture is he says in Matthew seven thirteen, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. See, within all the world, most people are going to hell. Most. And there are a few who will find eternal life. Which brings us to the second characteristics of these enemies of the cross, which Paul describes. He's shown us their degree, and now second, he shows us their doom. He says, For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even crying, as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Whose end is destruction. There are, in a sense, consequences to their lifestyle, and their consequences are everlasting. Saying their end is destruction, pointing out the fact that everyone has an end. As the writer to the Hebrews says, it has been appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. That there is a judgment and there is an appointment for every single person. And you will not be early and you will not be late for your appointment. You will be right on time at the time which God has appointed for you to stand before him and to be judged. For all the works you have done and the good works you have not done. And the things you have thought, the things you have said. And there's only one way to escape that judgment, and that's through Jesus Christ. Paul lists their doom, that their end is destruction. And what's interesting is that most of these people, I dare say all of them, are not concerned with the end. But they're concerned with the here and now. You know, the most famous false teachers of our day and age. His famous book, Your Best Life Now. It's all about the here and now. It's all about what I can get now, how I can uh, uh, 
advantage now, how I can benefit now. But Paul says to the Corinthians, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The whole point about Christianity is eternal life, being saved from hell, from the punishment that our sins deserve. It's not about this life, it's about the next. And yes, we live this life and we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, but our focus is to be on the next life, not on this life. Yet there is a divide that you, one characteristic of of false teachers and and false believers is they're focused on the here and now. Always. You see that. Just as an aside, you know, you look at um, false teachers and their books. Um, If their face is on the cover, (laughs) airbrushed, you know, probably about 98% chance they're a false teacher. If their book is in the New York Times bestseller list, probably a false teacher. It's clear. They're all about themselves and they're all about the here and now. Peter warns about this as well. In his letter, 2 Peter, his old letter devoted to warning the people about false prophets. He says, 2 Peter 2 in, in verses 1 to 3, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. They're, they're following their sensuality, what they can get now. That, that is, in a sense, their, their God. But destruction awaits them. There's, there's a reason why You know, this gets to the reason why Paul warns Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Because you'll see this sense that as every pastor, minister, and even Christian, every believer needs to take that warning to watch their life and their doctrine closely because they're interconnected. And one indicator of a false teacher there's false doctrine. There will be uh, impure living. They're, they're connected. They're intertwined. A couple ways to understand that, that there are consequences to their lifestyle. You know, no, I would dare say no false teacher is squeaky clean. There's something about their lifestyle. Second, their consequences are everlasting because they did not take God nor his gospel seriously. They did not take God or his gospel seriously. Their end is destruction. And their destruction is eternal and everlasting. I've shared this before, um, and I haven't shared this exact quote, but... um, well, I believe I, I've read a lot of books outside of the Bible, but I continue to go back to this book. And I believe it is the most important and significant book um, personally in my life outside of the Bible. And I would commend it to everyone. And this is a Puritan Richard Baxter's The Saints Everlasting Rest. He wrote this book while he was sick and almost near death. And it just talks about heaven and hell. And I would commend you, I would urge you, um, do everything short of commanding you to read it. <laughs> um, it's on Audible, it's an audiobook, it's very good. But he says this. He says this in, that, uh, in chapter 3 of the Saints' Everlasting Rest. He says, study frequently, study thoroughly this one word, eternity. What? Live and never die? Rejoice and never rejoice? Oh, happy souls in hell, should you but escape after millions of ages? Oh, miserable saints in heaven, should you be dispossessed after the age of a million of worlds? 
This one word, everlasting, contains the perfection of their torment and our glory. Oh, that the sinner would study this word. Methinks it would startle him out of his dead sleep. Oh, that the gracious soul would study it. Methinks it would revive him in his deepest agony. The most horrifying thing about hell is that it is everlasting. There is no relief. There is no release. There is no letting up of the torment. And no second chances. Once you're there, you're there. Second characteristic of the enemies of the cross is their doom where there is no second chance to repent. And the third characteristic of the enemies of the cross is their devotion. We've seen their degree, their doom, and now their devotion. Paul says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach. Whose God is their stomach. They have another God besides the one true and living God. Their God is their stomach, or some translations, belly. But it's not just the stomach and the belly, but it's a little bit broader. That is literally the word, but Paul is getting to their appetite. And that would be a good translation, not literal, but that's kind of what he's getting at, their appetite. And some have taken this um, rightly, but mostly to refer to gluttony. And I just want to take a, a, a few moments to speak about gluttony. Um, we know gluttony as uh, probably earlier in, in our history as one of the seven deadly sins, gluttony. But gluttony is, is not just the person who's overweight. It has something to do more than just uh, the person who has consumed a few extra calories every day over the course of years and decades, and that has built up, and now, now they're overweight. Uh, just as an aside, how you gain weight is you consume more calories than you expend. How you lose weight is you expend more calories than you consume. It's a simple equation, but not so simple to apply. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, um, gluttony speaks to not that fact that um, you've consumed more than you've expended, and so you're overweight. It's, it's, uh, it's the desire. You know, and, and not just the, the overweight person, but there's a, there's a sense of the skinny glutton, or, you know, some of us, we've seen this, or this has been ourselves, uh, the athlete. Uh, there's a sense where a triathlete can't eat enough because they're expending so many cal calories, or the growing boy with a hollow leg, um, they can't. Um, but there is a sense a, a, a glutton can e either be someone who's overweight or skinny. It's the desire. And it's a strong desire for and preoccupation with food and even drink. But I think what Paul is getting at here is, is even more so because gluttony, it's in a sense related to every other fleshly indulgence and idol. It's a fleshly desire and indulgence, a preoccupation with indulging the flesh. And it's interesting, I've done some rehab ministry before, and I've also experienced this myself, that... You know, you have one vice, and in trying to fight against one vice, whether that's uh, sexual immorality or, um, you know, pornography or substance abuse, uh, sometimes you trade that vice for another one. And so oftentimes I've seen this in rehab ministry where people who were drunkards or drug users have, in a sense, stopped drinking or using drugs, but then exchanged that for food. Or same is true with uh, forms of sexual immorality. That, that, that food is, in a sense, uh, legitimate. And, and Paul does uh, speak against those uh, 
uh, strict ascetics who deny food, abstain from food, as he speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, about those who would say, no, you need to abstain from food and abstain and, and live your life as an ascetic. He speaks again that, that God has given us food and we are to be thankful for it. But we are uh, not to uh, live to eat, but eat to live. We're thankful for it. We find that balance. But the same is true for all other fleshly indulgences. But these people, as, as Paul speaks about false teachers and false believers, their God is their stomach, and, and they're devoted to it. They, they, in a sense, they, they worship the flesh. They have another God, and they worship that, which is the flesh. They are preoccupied with all the ways in which they can gratify their own flesh. Any experience, whether it's the taste buds or the feeling, um, drugs, alcohol, uh, sexual immorality, food, uh, even uh, uh, extreme sports and the adrenaline that comes from that. Whatever the case, it's fleshly experiences. And they work towards that end. Whatever particular fleshly indulgence they desire, they work towards it. They live to indulge their flesh and are mastered, in a sense, by their fleshly impulses. And I would dare say that there isn't a person who has not been tempted in one of these ways and has not struggled with this whether it's food or immorality or substance abuse, it's so, because we can't get away from our flesh. It's always there. But Paul is speaking to those who um, have no uh, reservations. They, they fall headlong into it. They are committed to fleshly indulgence. They love it. It's what they're all about. The Baptist Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, he writes this in his, his uh Commentary. He says, the comic poet, Eupolis, uses a rare word, koleodaimon, um, for one who makes of God of his belly. And that word koleo, it's, it's this word which talking about the stomach, which Paul is getting at. A.T. Robertson, he goes on and says, and Seneca speaks of one who... Abdomini servit, that's Latin for serves the belly or serves the abdomen. And he says, sensuality in food, drink, sex, then as now mastered some men. It's always mastered some. And they, in a sense, the false teachers, false believers, um, and I would even dare say most people outside of Christ, um, they worship their flesh, fleshly indulgences. And this is exactly contrary to the Christian life as, as uh, Jesus uh, charges his disciples with the cost of discipleship in Luke 9.23. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul also, he, he confronts the Corinthians about this in 1 Corinthians 6. As he, he says, 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Speaking about Christian liberty. And then he goes on and he says, Food is for the stomach and stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. And he's using this term, he's turning it around on the, on the Corinthians, this term of uh, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. It's almost as an excuse to uh, be gluttons or to engage in sexual immorality, that it's just the body. And it gets to this, this uh, Greek uh, dualism of uh, spirit and matter, that matter is bad and, and the spirit is good, and so it doesn't really matter what happens to your body. Food is for the stomach, stomach is for food, it doesn't matter. Um, but Paul says God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And we are to glorify God in our bodies. Which brings us to the fourth characteristic of the enemies of the cross. Their delight. Their delight. He says, whose God is their stomach and glory is in their shame. Glory is in their shame. A, a part of worship 
a big part of worship is glorifying God or glory. If you're in another religion or, or whatever it may be, you're glorifying something. You're, you're worshiping something. But these false teachers and false believers, they glory in their shame. They glory in the inglorious. And they are unashamed of the shameful. They, they glory in what is not glory. They, they, they either, uh, from the self-righteous legalist standpoint, they trust in themselves and their works and uh, adherence to dietary laws, as Paul warns about the Judaizers. Or they are licentious libertines. They are lawless and proud of it. They're antinomians. They're anti-law. They're against the law. They, they don't care. There's no standards. There's this sense of um, what you probably heard, cheap grace, easy believism, um, that there's no rules. I, I'm saved by grace, and then I can just do whatever I want. Well, if you have that attitude, then you're probably not saved. You don't understand grace. And Paul speaks this uh, once again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 15, or do you not know he, he, he's speaking against them on the tail end of, of you know, uh, talking about them suing one another. And he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What Paul's getting at is saying, hey, these sins, these vices, mostly of the flesh, God will judge you for them. And you can't go on living that way if you are a believer. And there is a sense that this was some of you, and dare say all of you, one of these vices. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And we see this in our day and age, just capitulating to the LGBTQ agenda, and not just their agenda, but sexual immorality, and all sorts of immorality. And this term, which is an oxymoron, of the gay Christian. That you can be a Christian, still be a homosexual, because and a practicing homosexual. And then they'll say, well, this, this verse right here, Paul, along with other verses, is just a clobber passage. Well, you may say it's a clobber passage, but it's still a passage. It's still in the Bible. And even if there's only a phrase or a sentence in the Bible, you are to submit to it, because that is the word of the living God. But Paul, he says, such were some of you. And you're not to identify yourself by sin. It'd be the same thing that, you know, I know I lie a lot. And it's a hard thing, but, you know, I'm just a lying Christian. Or, you know, yeah, I covet and I struggle, but, you know, I'm just a covetous Christian. Or I'm just a murderous Christian. Or, or name the vice. You can't give an excuse for your sin. God will judge each and every sin. But these false believers and false teachers, they glory in what is shameful. That's their delight. They glory in it and they vaunt it. They, they, they flaunt it. They are unashamed of the shameful. This is, in a sense, we've seen this in our culture. There is a sense where, um, even long time ago, Things like, uh, uh, you know, having a child out of wedlock, um, getting a divorce was shameful. There was shame to that. And, and then came, uh, you know, no-fault divorce, and it's just like, well, we'll just get a divorce. And, you know, irreconcilable differences. And then the sexual revolution, you know, there was a, uh, that opened up the door to homosexuality, which was at one time shameful. And now it seems like it's no longer shameful. They just flaunt it. And then all sorts of other vice and immorality is being flaunted. And then they're trying to flip it so that they shame those who are 
speaking against it. And we're trying to be shamed for being believers. Coming quickly and soon to a country near you. They approve of and defend and even promote what God hates. All throughout the New Testament it is spoken of this. Jude writes this letter. And it's interesting, this short little letter. And he says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, and then he identifies them as ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What he's getting at is, you know, we see this in our day and age, the carnal Christian. Uh, you know, they're a believer, they're just a carnal Christian. No. They're not a Christian. They turn the grace of God into sensuality. It's cheap grace. That's what Paul speaks against in Romans 6. He's talking about the fact that all throughout the beginning of Romans, talking about the fact that we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not by works, not by any works. We cannot merit salvation. It's all of grace. And so he then confronts, in a sense, it, this um, imaginary protester or um, someone that, that um, uh, brings an objection to that. And in Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Meginotai. The strongest negative in the Greek. May it never even come into existence. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we've been saved by grace, all of our sins wiped away, forgiven, then, then we would not want to even touch that. We would be uh, abhorred by it. We would be disgusted by it. We would be torn over it. Which is a key indicator of whether or not you're truly a believer. Is there that internal struggle of hating what you, what you once loved and loving what's, what you once hated? And struggling with the flesh, which Paul would, would, would go on to say at the end of, of Romans chapter 7, the, the, the good that I want to do, I do not do, but the evil I do not want to do, I still do. I mean, this, this sense of uh, trading uh, uh, good for evil as well. Uh, you know, uh, Isaiah speaks about it. Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and understanding in their own sight, not submitting to God's law, twisting it. They glory in the inglorious. They are unashamed of the shameful. This is their delight. Jude also warns about these false believers and false teachers. He says in Jude 11, Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. There's two indicators which Jude points out here in verse 12 of Jude. Two phrases, caring for themselves. They're all about themselves. All about what they can get out of this life. That, that's their, their primary motivation. And they're also carried along by winds. Carried along by winds. What is Jude talking about there? The winds of the culture. Wherever the culture goes, they slowly capitulate. And they don't capitulate too fast because they don't want to lose their following. 
But just as the culture goes, they capitulate a little bit and a little bit so that they're still in step with the culture. And slowly they're out of step with God's word. Because they're, they don't care about God's word and they don't care about God. They, they are worshiping their own God, their appetites, their shame. Finally, the final characteristic of these enemies of the cross, which Paul describes, is their disposition. He, he's shown us their degree or their number, their doom, their devotion, their delight, and now their disposition at the end. Who set their thoughts on earthly things. This is their disposition, their whole mindset, uh, what they're fixated on. Earthly things. They, they, they disregard heaven and the afterlife. And they're so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. And they disregard heaven and the afterlife because they either proudly presume upon heaven and easy believism and cheap grace or because of their trust in self. Or they just don't want to think about it. And everything they do think about concerning religion is how it benefits them here. How it benefits them here and their, their influence, their notoriety, the, the, the money they can bilk out of the congregation and out of people and, and just uh, either being looked up to as one who is holy from the, the legalistic, self-righteous standpoint or just being looked up to as one who is hip and cool and understands the, the culture. You know, he gets it. He understands us. They're so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. They, they think contrary to how a Christian is supposed to think. We're supposed to fix our, our thoughts and our mind on things above, not on things below. Because that's where our life is. That's, that's where heaven is. We are to look to Christ as we run the race which is set before us. They don't think like those Paul calls us to follow as examples in verse 17. There's a contrast to this in Hebrews 11, in Moses. It's interesting. I, I was thinking about this as I was studying this. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 24 says this, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And Moses is one of those examples we are to follow, but false believers, false teachers, they invert that. And they do the exact opposite. They choose rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin than to be mistreated with the people of God. They, they, they regard the treasures of this world as greater riches than the reproach of Christ because they're not looking forward to the reward. They're not looking to heaven. They're looking to the earth and what they can get in the here and now. As Paul begins his warning in this passage of false teachers and false believers, he says, for many walk, many, which is in a sense the same warning Jesus gives in Matthew 7. 7.13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is a, probably the most sobering part of the whole passage. There are many on the broad way to destruction. There are many who will fall away, and there are many false hopes, beliefs, and opinions about religion, reality, and eternity. But the fact of the matter is there is only one truth, one path, one way, and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who said that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We come to him for salvation, for eternal life, for forgiveness, for cleansing, and we follow him if we have been given that eternal life. As much of a struggle as it is, 
as we struggle with the, the, the flesh and our besetting sins or our remaining sins, nonetheless, we are to struggle and we are to focus on Him. And we are not to uh, give in to those desires of the flesh. We are to fight. The Christian, the Christian life is a fight. It's a race. It's a battle. And there are enemies. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And honestly, our greatest enemy is ourselves, our own flesh, that wants us to go aside and, and uh, indulge and, and, and pander to your flesh. Jesus ends his, towards the Sermon on the Mount with this stark warning. He says, Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. One of the most terrifying words a human being could ever hear. I never knew you. Depart from me into the everlasting flames of torment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you were just playing at religion. You didn't really take this seriously. You didn't take it to heart. You're just playing games with the gospel. You're playing games with church. These things are of eternal significance and matter. Sin is nothing to play with. That's why Paul gives this admonition to the Corinthians. He starts his letters to the Corinthians, and it is encouraging that he calls them saints. But he knows they're not all saints. He knows. At the end of, towards the end of 2 Corinthians, he says this in 13.5, Test yourselves, examine yourselves, to see if you are in the faith. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Christ, Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to walk in Christ's likeness. We're called to uh, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And um, from time to time, we are to examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith, that we are living according to that standard, that our heart is truly wants to to honor Christ and to live for him as much as we fail. And this is what we're called to right now. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are called to examine ourselves. We are called to confess any uh, known sins that we would not eat this supper in an unworthy manner. And yes, it's true that, that none of us are perfect, and there is a sense that I know many believers, and I've done this before, you're confessing sin as you come up to take the cup and the bread. And that's right, and that's good, and it's true. But this supper is for true believers, those who have truly been born again, and those who are striving for holiness. It's not for those who are perfect, because that's none of us. But it's for those who are born again. You don't have to be a member of this church to... Uh, partake with us. You just have to be a true believer that's striving for holiness. So I'm going to pray for us, and then the men will um, will dismiss you to uh, gather the elements, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, these two Two short verses that confront us, that warn us that there are tares among the wheat, that there are false believers, there are false teachers, and there's many of them. Also that most people are on the broad way. But by your grace, many of us here have been brought to saving faith. We have been confronted in our sinfulness we have been convicted, we've been converted, we've been born again. And so we celebrate that. We think of that. 
We think of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf by Jesus Christ, the only one who ever lived your law perfectly, who obeyed your law perfectly, who loved you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself, who lived a life that none of us could live, and went to the cross to die the death that every one of us deserves to die, bearing the wrath of all those who would repent and believe upon him, the punishment that was due us, he bore for us. And so as we come, as we're commanded to, we come to partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him, of his body which was broken for us and his blood which was shed for us. Help us to examine ourselves and not to eat it in an unworthy manner, but to also celebrate his sacrifice which was made on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.